0: All right, please remain standing and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll read verses 35 to 41. Then we'll uh, go back to our sermon text in Jonah 1. Mark four thirty-five. On that day when evening had come... He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's turn now back to Jonah. Someone reminded me last week, Help us find this in the Minor Prophets. It's a fam- famous book, but can be hard to find. So Ezekiel, Daniel... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. I'm not sure how much that helps. but um, Right before Micah, near the end of the Old Testament here. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship... And the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. You may be seated. Start with some lines of poetry here. See if you recognize them. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him, and under running laughter, up visted hopes. I sped. And shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency, they beat. Those are the opening lines of a a very famous poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. I think more people have heard of the title than have actually read the poem, but that's how it begins. very moving picture of someone who spends his whole life running away from God, basically, hiding from him by, by filling his life with all kinds of other things that the world and other people have to offer, but God keeps pursuing this man graciously, persistently, those strong feet followed, followed after. That hound of heaven would not let that man escape the grace of God, the call of God. Now we're returning here to the prophet Jonah um, on the run from God. Uh, God had told him to go to Nineveh. Jonah instead determined to sail as fast and as far as he could in the opposite direction. But behind Jonah comes the beat of those strong feet that followed, followed after him. The hound of heaven not leaving Jonah alone, not just acquiescing as he seeks to run away and abandon his mission. I want to give you three points to think about as we work our way through this passage. The first one is going to be sleeping through the storm, verses 4 through 6. Second is singling out the sinner, verses 7 to 10. And then third is serving the sovereign Savior, verses 11 to 16. So sleeping through the storm, singling out the sinner, and serving the sovereign Savior. All right, so right away in verse 4, we get a very important piece of information that the characters within the story don't have access to yet. They will. And that is, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The sailors, of course, can see that there's a storm. Um, But they do not yet know the name of the one who has hurled that storm upon the sea. Um, Now, that's not to say that the sailors view this as a purely natural uh, disaster. And in this sense, they maybe have... Um, perhaps a little bit better spiritual insight into the situation than a lot of supposedly enlightened 21st century people uh, might have had under similar circumstances. Because these sailors understand already that just the visible world of sight and sense and weather is not all there is. What you see is not all there is. They know that the storm of wind and water Um, has something more going on in it than can be just reduced to just wind and water. And so as the ship threatens to break up here, it says uh, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. So they're seeing this storm as a supernatural event and um, so they're seeking in response a supernatural solution. Um, To use the terms we've been using in uh, adult Sunday school, they are seeking deliverance. They are seeking a way out. And of course, at first, um, they don't succeed in that because the gods that they're crying out to are not the ones who have brought this storm. And there's nothing that any of their gods can do to calm this storm. Really, you could argue that this whole storm scene is as much about the sailors, really, as it is about Jonah. Um, It's about the development of their spiritual understanding of what's going on here. How they move from ignorance and idolatry at the beginning and helplessness, also, in verse 5. And you move to verse 16, and where have they ended up? They've ended up in understanding and worship. And rescue. The question is, how are they going to get from here to there? From ignorance, idolatry, and helplessness to understanding and worship and rescue? How are they going to learn? What's going to cause them to make that move? And so you could think, well, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if they had on board the ship, like a a prophet or something, (laughs) who, who, who could tell them... Uh, what's going on, who could explain things to them. If, if only there could have been a messenger from God on this ship who could uh, tell them what the one true God um, was doing, Who the, the one true God who is really sovereign over the sea, unlike their own gods. And then, of course, you remember, oh, of course, there was such a prophet on their ship. But then we have to ask the question, where was he all this time? Is there up there on deck? In their confusion, crying out to their gods. And in verse 5, you find out where Jonah is. We find out that he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Remember from last time that progression of going down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the hold of the ship to go to sleep, and eventually down into the depths of the sea that Brian Estelle traced for us. Um, Now, it's natural for us to think here about the New Testament reading from earlier about Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and how he, too, was sleeping soundly in the bottom of the boat, right? When that storm blew up and threatened to sink that ship, carrying Jesus and his disciples. We have to think carefully here, though. When we make those kinds of comparisons, it's really important that we pay attention not only to what's the same, but also to what's different because it's in the contrast as much as it is in the comparisons that the Old Testament points us forward to Christ. Uh, See, Jesus' sleep is not the same as Jonah's sleep. This is something else that that same commentator, Brian Estelle, reflects on. Jesus is uh, sleeping in in Mark. Jesus is sleeping this sleep of, um, you could say, peace, of confidence. He's resting in the care of his Heavenly Father. So it's a sleep of faith. knowing that he has the power at any time to get up and do exactly what he ends up doing, which is to calm the storm, because that's who Jesus is. With Jonah, it's quite different. Jonah is asleep in the hold of the ship for a very different reason. If you look across the Old Testament, sleep can represent more than one thing. Sleep can represent rest, trust, peace. Think of Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So... Um, Sleep can represent our trust in God, our willingness to let go and depend on Him. But it can also represent, symbolically in the Old Testament, a spiritual dullness. It can represent being insensitive to the things of God. Think of Isaiah 29, verse 10, where it says, The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And so Estelle suggests here that Jonah's sleep is really part of Jonah's overall attempt to escape. It's an escape response, his attempt to get away, not just physically, but emotionally, from the call of God. Uh, and that's something that maybe some of us are familiar with, right? That's, uh, you know, sleep is important, Sleep, rest is important. It's one of the ways that we express our trust in God. But sleep can also be a form of escapism, right? A way to avoid life, a way to avoid hard things, to avoid the calling that we have to Get up and serve others, to serve the Lord, to cry out to our God, as Jonah is called to do here. So this is a very uh, human, very relatable reaction from Jonah, whose whose conscience at this point had to have been very heavy, even tortured by uh, running away from his calling. And so what better way for him to tune out that voice of conscience than just to check out and go to sleep, stay in bed, roll over, hit the snooze button in the bottom of the boat, But of course, um, tuning out the voice of conscience does not make the reality go away. Does it? Just ignoring it doesn't stop the danger. The danger is there whether Jonah opens his eyes to it or not. In verse six, then, isn't it ironic that it's the pagans, uh, the pagan ship's captain, who comes wakes Jonah up and. And tells Jonah the spiritual um, calling that he has at this moment. Jonah, you need to wake up and call out to your God, of all people to tell God's prophet what to do. You have this pagan ship's captain who doesn't know anything about the Lord telling the prophet what he, that he should pray. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah, just underlining again the way Jonah has abdicated his, his calling as a prophet. There's this role reversal going on. What a rebuke it is to Jonah. But, of course, the rebukes are just beginning because verse 7, we go on to that second section, singling out the sinner. The sailors decide to cast lots, figure out whose fault the storm is, who, who has made some god or other angry at them. Um, and so uh, casting lots, I think most of you know, is kind of the ancient equivalent of kind of flipping a coin or drawing straws or something like this. But with the understanding that the outcome is not going to be random, that the outcome is going to be divinely guided to give some supernatural information about uh, what's really going on here. Now, the soldiers are, are certainly confused here. Um, in, in their minds, uh, did I say the soldiers? I meant the sailors are confused here. In their minds, there are, there are uh, many gods who might have caused this storm. There are many gods... Uh, who might be angry, that need to be placated. That's, that's their thinking. But what the Lord is doing uh, through this whole scenario is he is using this crisis to teach them something different, to teach them who the true God is, to lead them out of that ignorance and confusion into the clarity of understanding the one true God of the whole creation. I mentioned uh, last time some very striking parallels between Jonah here and the experience of the Apostle Paul in the storm at sea, in Acts 27, that we covered at the end of our Acts series. Uh, and one of, the, one of the Acts commentators points, out, points this out too. Remember how in, in both cases, um, the Lord is at work to reveal something about himself uh, to everybody on that ship. He's revealing who is really in control of the storm and who has the power to bring them all safely through it. Now, oh, there's some uh, great contrasts, too, right, between Paul and Jonah. In, in Paul's case, Paul's presence on the ship is the one reason that everybody on the ship is going to be saved. In Jonah's case, of course, Jonah's presence on the ship is the one reason that everybody's in danger in the first place. Um, but in both cases, here's what the two scenarios have in common. In both cases, the ship's destiny and the destiny of the whole ship's company revolves around one man, and that one man is the man of God. It's God's messenger who is on board that ship. It revolves around God's plan for that messenger of his. And in both cases, God is intending to show that messenger and all of his traveling companions in a very powerful and personal way that salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember I told you that last time. That's the great theme of the entire book of Jonah, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's not a message that just Jonah needs to learn, and it's not only just a message for the people of Nineveh to learn. In chapter 1, the first people to learn that lesson are going to be these sailors as they move from their ignorance and idolatry and helplessness to understanding and worship and rescue. So the sailors cast their lots. The lot falls on Jonah You can imagine the sense of conviction that Jonah must have been gripped by by this time. Be sure, Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Jonah is experiencing the living reality of that warning, that promise of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139, if I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there, your right hand will lay hold of me. You can say the hound of heaven has caught up to Jonah. Jonah knows he can't get away. He knows that the Lord, for better or for worse, has not and will not let him go. Just leave him to himself. And so in verse 8, the, the questions just start to kind of sp- spill over one on top of the other from the sailors. Um, Each one of which, by the way, kind of twists the knife of conviction. Another turn. What is your occupation? I'm a prophet. (laughs) What kind of prophet are you, Jonah? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? I'm an Israelite, a Hebrew. Part of the people who are in covenant with God, called to be holy from the promised land. I betrayed that covenant identity by running away from my covenant God. It's in, verse, in verse 9, as Jonah answers these questions, it's as though he at last begins to come to his senses. He begins to remember and to confess his true relationship with his true covenant God. And um, There's another parallel here I think we could see with the Apostle Paul. Uh, thinking of Paul at Athens, um, and we've been reflecting on this quite a bit, of course, in our apologetic Sunday school class, how he sees all the idols of the Athenians including the altar to the unknown God, and he tells them what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to explain to you. I'm going to tell you the truth about the one true God of heaven and earth, of the whole creation. See, the pagan world of Jonah's day and the pagan world of Paul's day um, had in common, that they all had these uh, many specialized gods, uh, some with power over the sea, some with power over the land, some over the heavens, some over the earth, some over the underworld, Um, But Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's like this triangle encompassing the entire cosmos, everything there is. At last, you could say Jonah is actually carrying out his job as a prophet. He's doing it at last. He's, He's discipling these sailors right here in the middle of this gale. And he's saying, let me tell you who the true God really is. The God of everything. And he's the one. who has sent this storm against me. It's striking, and again, what a rebuke to Jonah, how uh, just horrified these sailors are, how taken aback they are, that Jonah would do such a thing to such a God. You told us that you were fleeing from the presence of your God, but, but when you told us that, we, you didn't tell us what kind of God he was, what your God was like. Maybe we never would have taken you on board if we had known that. He was a God like this, this is sovereign, this is powerful, this just. What is this that you have done? Now, here, here we all find ourselves sinners in the hands of an angry God. We don't know what to do. you tell us, prophet of this Lord? And this brings us to the final section, starting at verse 11 serving the sovereign Savior. Jonah, you tell us. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Things were getting worse and not better. And Jonah knows the storm is because of me. These men's lives are in danger because of me. And so the only way for these men to be saved is for me to leave this ship one way or another, for my life to be sacrificed so that these sailors can be saved. There's one ride that compares Jonah with the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 that it was Uh, That that goat that would be sent away from the camp of Israel, the Day of Atonement, into the wilderness, uh, symbolically bearing the people's sins, carrying them away so that the people might be spared the wrath of God. Only in this case, it's different, right? Because Jonah is carrying away his own sins. So the analogy breaks down a little bit, right? You might think, oh, look, what a great picture of the gospel this is uh, 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 and of of the death of Jesus, how Jonah is laying down his life so the sailors can be saved, Um, And it's good for us to pick up on those thematic connections, that general imagery of sacrifice and salvation that's repeated in many biblical stories. But remember, we've also got to clue into the vast differences between Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, who suffers not for his own sins, but for other people's sins, versus the many very flawed and sinful prophets and priests and kings of Israel who suffer for their own sins, who cause great suffering for their own people. So yes, Jonah's life points forward to Jesus, but again, it's by contrast as much as it is by comparison. The real point, I think, of this part of the story is not merely then for us to see the storm cease when Jonah is thrown overboard. Not merely to see that the sailors' lives are saved by Jonah's sacrifice. It's for us to see the sailors' reaction. What do they learn from this? What do they take away from this whole experience? Already in verse 14, we find them beginning to pray. Not anymore to their own pagan gods that they started out praying to, but to this one true God that Jonah has just told them about. Oh, Lord, they say. And when you see those small capital letters there in the text, you know that they're using now... The covenant name, the proper name of God, of the one true God that he specially gave to Israel. These pagan Gentiles are now calling on the God of Israel. They're praying no longer to their false pantheon, but to the one true creator and Lord and king of the universe, the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have it done as it pleased you, recognizing God's authority, his sovereignty, his prerogative, to do what he pleases. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then what happened? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So how does this scene end? It ends in worship, doesn't it? It ends with these pagan Gentile sailors bowing the knee to the true creator, the true savior. And so in spite of himself... In spite of himself, Jonah has ended up already fulfilling, in part, his prophetic calling, we talked about last time, to be a light to the nations, to proclaim among the Gentiles the truth about God and his saving power, which is the whole reason God sent him to Nineveh. And why is it that all of this has taken place? It's because... Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is why. Do you see how already, before Jonah is even rescued by the fish, before he even comes to Nineveh and calls them to re- to repentance, already we're seeing illustrated in the lives of this captain and his crew that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord has done as it pleased him and now the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Well, this whole scene, of course, should make us Think, of course, of that other storm on that other sea in that other boat when Jesus was sleeping, as we talked about earlier, and his disciples woke him up. Now, that day, it was not yet time for Jesus to sacrifice himself to save his disciples and us from the coming judgment. That he would do on the cross sometime later. But it was time for something else, another aspect of his life's work. It was time for Jesus to reveal to them, something about his identity, something about his sovereign power over the creation, and to impress upon his disciples in an unforgettable way, what lesson? The lesson that salvation belongs to the Lord. And not just that, but that that Lord, that that Lord is Jesus Christ. Who then is this? even the wind and the seas obey him. He is the Lord, is the implied answer. The Lord of heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land, the creator of all things and the one to whom all men and women and boys and girls must bow the knee in worship and obedience. So with that in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You are the Lord of all, and salvation belongs to you. Lord, as you have just taught us this in the scriptures, through your word, we ask that you would now show it to us also in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.